want you to turn with me to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, and as you're turning there, um, again, I just want to remind you, if you're new in our church family, we really would like for you to come and be a part of our newcomer luncheon next Sunday. So please stop by and sign up. We'd love to have you as part of that. Um, this morning, we're going to continue on with our series on family values. Family values. This is something that I started last week, and uh, uh, I, I'm just going to say this. Um, it's important that we understand family values, the, uh, the, the, the God construct of what the family's all about. Our families today are under attack. Who would have ever thought that we would live in a time in America when if you as a parent were concerned about what your children were uh, learning or even just concerned about anything, if you went to a school board meeting and dared to speak up about anything, you would be labeled a terrorist. Who would have ever thought that we would be in a place like that? Uh, again, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not making any type of political statement, I'm just simply saying it boggles my mind that we live in a, a time when families uh, are looked at suspect. If you are interested or involved, I always called myself an active father. My kids said I was overbearing. I said, no, I'm active. Because <laughs> I wanted to know where they were. I wanted to know who they were with. And I didn't want to know when they were coming home. I told them when they were coming home. You know, I, I don't want to leave it to chance. I, I didn't, you know, again, I, I, you've heard me say this for years. I, I understood that as a parent, I have one shot to, to have my children fall in love with Jesus. And when I miss that, when they get out on their own, I don't have that influence anymore. I still have influence over my children. I'm not saying that. But that type of formidable in, in, uh, influence is something in their developmental years. And, uh, and it was very important to me. Because listen, I, I believe it's important that we, we help our children in their uh, search for a, a, a companion, okay? Amen? Amen. I mean, I, I really do. I think it's important who we marry. Uh, I think it's important what career they go into. I, I think it's important what, uh, uh, what's, whether they go to college or vocational school or whatever, the military or whatever the situation is. I, I think all those things are important. But absolute importance is that they fall in love with Jesus and they accept him as their personal Lord and Savior. And so this morning, I, I've been down this path before, but we're going to do it again because I think there's a lot of people here that need to hear this message today. Uh, family faith. I want to show you here in just a moment how, fa how faith, if you leave faith alone, it will decline from one generation to the next. If I don't do anything about it, my faith that is passed down, the Bible exhorts us to pass on faith to the next generation. And if you leave faith by itself, people just say, well, I want my children to make a, an informed decision. I, I'm not against informed decision. But that doesn't mean you take your hands off and you don't influence them towards righteousness. So, so uh, I want to show you from Scripture how faith, if you leave it by itself, will naturally decline from one generation to the, to the next. Joshua chapter 24 Beginning verse 14, one that we know well. I taught on this just a couple of Wednesday nights ago. Joshua stands up. You've got to understand, Joshua right now, is he's older. His ministry, his life, it's coming to an end. And so one last time, he gathers the elders of Israel in the promised land. That was his assignment, to get them into the promised land. So he gathers the elders together uh, to, for one last pastoral advice. And here's what he says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Isn't that a great admonition? Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, what do you say we're going to do? We will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to his word this morning. Again, this is going to be a short series in part because of the ministry that we have launched just recently called FAM. FAM ministry is family and marriage ministry. We are tackling the issues surrounding family today. We live in a culture that has 
for the last 20 or so years, 30 years, has sought to uh, assault the dynamics of the family. And if you want to know the result of that, just look at the nightly news. Our society is crumbling around us. Anything goes in this world that we live in. We have tried to redefine what the family is all about. We have basically tried to remove God from every facet of what the family is supposed to be. And the consequences of, of that is that today we don't, we don't know who we are, we don't know what we are, and we don't know which bathroom to go into. Again, it, it is a very sad thing today, and it's all a direct result and correlates directly with the attack on the family. Now, you've heard me say this for years. I am a family man. I am a family man. From day one, from day one when my daughter was born, I remember like it was yesterday. She was born in Wiesbaden Hospital in Wiesbaden, Germany. I held her, uh, as, and, and when our eyes crossed, I was hooked. I was hooked. I, I, I melted at the idea of being a father, uh, and, and I still have that feeling. I love being a dad. One of the greatest things I've ever been called. I've been called a lot of stuff in my life, some good and some not so good. But dad and now Pawpaw are tops. When my son was born, came along, it solidified uh, for me the incredible responsibility of what it means to have a family and to be a father. It's not for the faint of heart. It is a task, and it is a responsibility. Last week, again, I said that the family unit has been under attack for a number of years. You know, the Bible is filled with one story after another. This is not a recent phenomenon. Now, some of the craziness is fairly recent, but the Bible gives one story after another of the family being under tremendous attack. And the reason is this, because the family is the very basic building block of society, the church. Okay, so, so you kind of see why, that's a, that's why that is a vulnerable spot. Uh, because as the family goes, so goes society. As the family goes, so goes the world. Last, uh, last year, Pew Research, let me give you some data from, from some of the recent researches regarding the family. Last year, Pew Research Center conclu concluded, and, and I'm just going to share their results of this survey. They were surveying the spiritual aptitude and the spiritual temperature of America. And here's what they came up with. They said that the conclusion is this, that America right now is in uncharted territory with a complete religious reversal. That's what they're saying is happening in America right now, is that there is a complete religious reversal. Uh, now, now think about this. America was founded on biblical principles. You got to understand that. Anybody who says otherwise is ignorant of American history. It is woven into the fabric of who we are as a nation. Now, I'm not saying America is without fault, okay? Not at all. There's a lot wrong, and a lot of reasons that the world doesn't like America is because of the cesspool that we become. But you go back to the beginning, America was a beacon of hope. It was a beacon of light that, that was shining into this dark world. You go back in the very beginning, missions organizations and missionaries were sent for around the world. With the, with the idea of presenting the gospel to those who were lost. The largest church at that time met, listen to this, in the United States Capitol building. Every week they had an attendance of over 2,000 people that gathered in that church. Thomas Jefferson was a regular attendee of that church, as were Presidents John Adams, James Madison, John Quincy Adams, and Abraham Lincoln. You can't go anywhere, even today in Washington, D.C., without seeing the deep, the, the deep, rich Christian heritage of America. Amen. I know they've been programmed to not talk about it. You go into the Supreme Court, and right above the Supreme Court, you see Moses with the Ten Commandments. But because we have tried to divest ourselves of any religious heritage, what they say is that Moses is carrying the Bill of Rights which is kind of interesting because the Bill of Rights wasn't done in Hebrew. <laughs> but even on the Washington Monument is the inscription, Laos Deo, which simply means praise be to God. You can't argue with the Christian heritage. Yet, uh, yet not in the 60s, okay? In the 60s, a door swung open that introduced new lifestyles into mainstream America. All of a sudden, the Protestant, Catholic, Jewish faith no longer summed up the spiritual practices of our nation. 
And from that point on, faith has continued to spiral downward in Western society. And again, they concluded, Pew Research concluded, and here's what they made a statement about faith in America. Here's what they said. People are giving up on Christianity, end quote. That's the summation of faith, matters of faith in America right now, our Western culture, is that people are giving up on Christianity. And other pollsters would agree with that. Other pollsters would say George Barna, in fact, reported 63% do not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the one true God. 58% believe that, every, uh, that all faiths teach equally valid truths. 51% don't believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. 65% believe that Satan is not a real entity. He's just a metaphor. And 68% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a real entity. That is kind of the spiritual climate today. The generation born between 1999 and 2015 is the first true post-Christian generation in our country. They grew up in the least spiritually committed household since records have been kept. Again, there are exceptions, okay? This is not putting everybody in that pot, but but there are exceptions, but the vast majority today since 1999 have been growing up in marginal Christian homes at best. Marginal. Now, I preached on this before. Bruce Wilkerson wrote a book on this very subject many years ago. But the reality is this. If you leave faith alone, okay, if you leave it alone, it will decline from one generation to the next. It will decline. Jesus even asked this question in Luke 18, verse 8. says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will there be faith on the earth? That's an interesting question. You know, we could spend a long time talking about the ills of society, but the bottom line is this. What ails America today, please hear me, it is not a political problem. You see, we get, we, 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 we've been told that if we don't like the system, then the next election we elect the different side. So we elect the different side, and we get the same results. And they say, well, if, let's go back to the other side. So the next cycle comes around, we go back to the other side, and it's the same results. It's not changing. You know why? Because it's not a political problem. It is not what happen, what's happening in America. It's not a political problem. It's not a legislative problem. It is a spiritual problem. And it has to have spiritual solution, and it is an issue of the heart. And the only institution that is, that is equipped to deal with the heart is the church through Christ, the only one. Amen. You know, I have witnessed for ourselves, I'm 57 years old, and in my 57 years, I've seen the natural declination of faith from one generation to the next. Please understand that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will abuse. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will abuse. And previous generations, hear me, have marginalized matters of faith. And the consequences in 2023 is we are seeing a total abandonment of the faith. The height of that, you go Romans 1, you can read it unfolding in our society today. The height of that is to rebel and say, and to basically deny the creative power and order of God to say, I am not who he made me to be. That's where we are. We are at the height of rebellion that says, I was born a boy, I was born a girl, but that's not who I am. That's the height of rebellion. That's where we are. Because previous generations have marginalized matters of faith. Today we no longer, God is not even relevant to our conversation today. Listen, if we don't pay attention and pass on a vibrant faith, our children and our grandchildren are in danger of rejecting it outright. Amen. Let me say that again. If we as parents and grandparents do not actively pass on a faith, I'm not talking about political faith, I'm talking about biblical faith. If we don't pass on faith to the next generations, they are in danger of rejecting it outright. Psalm 145, 4 says, one generation commends your work to another, they tell of your mighty deeds. I have three chairs up here this morning. In each one of these chairs, I'm going to illustrate how faith will decline from one generation to the next. I want to show you how one generation goes from being committed and sold out to God to being uncommitted. I want to show you how once vibrant churches have been reduced to mausoleums of, 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 of dead religion in our world today. So I'm going to label these, as you can see, 
So we're going to call this one Generation 1, Generation 2, and Generation 3, okay? So, so when I start talking about one, so Joshua in our text this morning, Joshua is what? Joshua is a first chair believer. He is a first generation believer. He stands up in front of the elders and he said, look guys, you can choose to serve the gods of your fathers who were on the other side of the river or you can serve the gods that were back in Egypt. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, he's a first chair believer. He's a first generation believer that says, as far as I'm concerned, my family, my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, you got to understand, today we need men. We need men in the house. And listen, I know we have all kinds of dynamics. We have single parents, single moms, single dads. I understand that. But, but, but Joshua understood the order of God. And, and God places tremendous responsibility. In today's culture, we would call biblical masculinity chauvinistic. To show you how far removed we are from, from the biblical design of what family is supposed to be. Joshua said, you know what? I'm speaking as the priest of my home. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We're going to serve the Lord. I grew up in a house like that. I am where I am today because I, you, you know my story. I rebelled, ran away from home when I was 17. I got mixed up in all kinds of things the world said I needed to have to be successful, to be fulfilled, to be happy. You know what kept me? It's a father who made me go to church every time the doors were open when I was a little boy. I had that drug problem. Every time the doors, I was drugged to church. Sometimes the doors weren't even open when we were at the church. I told the early service this morning, I said, you know, the interesting thing is that we, even when I was living in the world, not even living as, for Christ, I found myself in church every Sunday. I wasn't living for the Lord. I had no connection to God. I was totally reprobate. But there was something that my dad installed in me as a little boy that made me get up out. I don't care if I spent the night with somebody on a, Friday, on a Saturday night. If I did, guess what? They were going to be at their house on Sunday morning to take me to church. Because we weren't missing church. I mean, I had to be on my deathbed to miss church. That's how important. <laughs> Some of you had the same reason. I, I, they just thought it was important. So he's speaking as the priest of the home. He said, look, as far as I'm concerned, my family, they're going to serve the Lord. Does that mean that my child will never de deviate from the faith? No, it does not. It does not. It just simply means that your, your children will have much, much better chances of falling in love with Jesus if you love Jesus. That's what it means. See, he recognized his God-given responsibility, and he spoke for the family. He said, we're going to serve the Lord. See, Joshua is a first-generation believer. He knows the Lord. He knows him in an intimate way. He had, he had a personal relationship with him. He desired God's best for his family. And I guess we could sum up Joshua's life. He was God-centric in how he lived. He was God-centric. That meant God was the hub of everything in his life. See, today, modern Christians, we add God to stuff. But for Joshua, he was the center. He was the hub from which everything flowed out of. The lens in which he looked at the world was filtered through his relationship with God. That's a first-chair believer. But I want you to notice what happened. Read verse 31 of that same chapter, and you see what happened when Joshua... That next generation comes along. See, Joshua, and saw, he saw incredible things uh, from God because he developed that int intimacy with God. But the Bible says this in verse 31. It says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Okay, first generation. They served the Lord throughout his lifetime. And of the elders who outlived him, next generation, of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Did you see it? Had done. There's a shift in tense. Joshua is experiencing God. The next generation that come up after him, remember what God did. You see the difference there? Psalm 103 verse 7 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Again, you can see the difference even there. Moses knew God. Israel knew of God. See, that's my prayer for our, the youth of our church and our, our, our nation and our children is that they don't just accumulate facts about God, but they know God. They know Him in their knower because that's the difference. He knew God. They knew about God. 
They can answer trivia questions. They could, tell you, they could sing the songs. They've been to kids' church. They went to youth group. They could sing all those songs, but they knew of God. They didn't know him. You can clearly see how faith has declined from one generation to the next. Joshua knew the Lord in a personal, intimate way, but the next generation comes along and they knew the deeds of the Lord. This indicates that God is no longer active in that generation. Generation one knows the Lord. They know him intimately. Generation two knows of the Lord. Generation two, they outlive Joshua, okay? So grandpa, so we have dad, son, and we have grandson. Three generations. Three generations. <laughs> I can't count. Three generations. So, so the second generation passes on. Um, Joshua knew God. Didn't, the other generation came along. Didn't have the same passion. Not to the same degree of the first generation. They're not as committed as the first generation. So then what happens? Well, if you look at Judges 2 and 10, it gives you a description of the third generation. And here's what it says. A third generation believer is, a belie- is, is one who is raised in the home of a second chair believer. Here's what the Bible says. After that generation died, okay, these outlived Joshua, these outlived Joshua, after this generation died, look at what it says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge God or remember the mighty things he had done. You see that? Three generations. We go from on fire with God, knowing trivial knowledge about God, having no knledge of God, nor the desire to know in three generations. Generation one knows the Lord. Generation knows the Lord, but more from a distance, okay? They know what God used to do. They know his deeds, but they don't have that fire that personal relationship generation three knows not the lord neither what he has done see that's the natural tendency of faith right there if you leave it by itself it will decline from one generation to the next the first generation they know the lord intimately they know they uh, the second one they know of the lord the third one they don't know the lord another way of looking at it is saved saved but shallow unsaved unsaved or we could do it like this one strong believer weak believer unbeliever in three generations the first generation they experienced the miracle power of god because they knew the god of miracles i was telling the early service i grew up in that home i grew up in a home where my uh, again where i'm the the reason i am where i am today is because of my father my father was a he wasn't a preacher. My granddaddy was, but my, my father wasn't, other than the fact that he preached to me every day of my life. Amen. And thank God for a dad that did that. Amen. He only had one sermon. You know what it is. It was, boy, Jesus is coming. You better be ready. <laughs> That's the only sermon he knew. And he preached to me every day of my life. I remember as a little boy, we'd go to church. We had a, we had a man, I won't ever forget, Toby Dunn, Brother Toby Dunn. He was old when I was a kid. Old man. He dropped out of school in, the, in, in middle school so he could barely read. But he could do one thing that just, the reason I remember him is he could pray. And I remember as a little boy at night, so we had these, this shotgun church. So we had, a, we had a section here and a section here in the middle aisle. And then under the pews was tile and the rest of it was carpet. And I can remember as a little boy sliding underneath the pew at night. You know, because that's what we did as kids. And I can remember Brother Dunn starting to pray. And when he prayed, it sounded like the thunder of a storm was shaking that place. He would be the type of guy that you want on your prayer team if you needed somebody to touch God. If you had a wayward son or daughter, you wanted to call Brother Toby Dunn because, man, when that guy prayed, man, the heavens shook. Something powerful about it. I grew up hearing those stories and experiencing those things. And and here's the thing. My children heard those stories. But I always tried to make it where they understood it's not just stories of what God used to do because there's a theological word called immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. uh, and, and, And forever. He's the same. He doesn't change. 
James says with him there is no shadow, no variableness or shadow of turning. In other words, what God was to a generation ago, he'll be to this generation. What God, how God moved in a generation before, God will move in this generation. And what God does in this generation, the succeeding generations, your children and your grandchildren can experience the same power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that you've experienced. There is no variableness nor shadow of turning with God. You've got to forgive me for being passionate. I'm praying God send the fire in our lives and in our families. Our world's in trouble, and it's not because of a political party. It's because the church has not done their job in passing on a faith that is alive and vibrant and well into the next generation. We need a revival in our families today. There's something that's got to happen. That first generation, man, they experienced the miracle power of God because they knew the God of miracles. Second generation knows the works of God because they heard mom and dad talk about it. They heard mom and dad talk about it. But they're not experiencing it. They read the books. They heard the stories. But they experienced very little of what God is doing actively in the world today. The third generation, not only do they not know the Lord, they've never seen any mighty works of God. They've never seen it. The first generation is marked by passion for God, and they filter everything through that, that passion, that passionate relationship. They don't, they don't move without praying and asking God. Second generation comes along, and God is just added to an already busy scale. They'll get up 10 minutes early so they can pray a blessing over their day, and that's about the extent of their devotional life. I'm not knocking that. I'm just simply saying it doesn't go any deeper than that. That's why we have a lot of believers today that are a mile wide and they're an inch deep. They have a lot of surface faith. What happens when the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, but it's inoperable? Or the doctor says, there's nothing medically that can be done. Or the, you, you come in and the wife has left you a note and says, I'm sorry, but I don't love you anymore. Or the husband left you a, wife, a note and said, I don't love you anymore. Where's that shallow faith going to take you then? Not going to get you anywhere. Second generation, is they're marked by compromise. They're marked by compromise. They grow up in a Christian home. They grow up with, with first-chair Christian parents, parents who are sold out. Listen, you grow up in a Christian home. If you have, if you have parents that are first-chair believers, you can't help but believe. I mean, you, you can't help but believe. I mean, you, you grow up in that Christian home. I, I grew up in a Christian home. Again, I, I, I don't even remember a time when I didn't believe. Even when I was in, re, in total rebellion, I still found myself in church. There was never a time I didn't believe. Even though I wasn't serving him, I was still there because it was something that resonated in my spirit. There are a lot of people today that grew up in good Christian homes and you can't remember a time when you did not believe in Jesus. You thought everybody was doing it. You can hardly remember a time when you didn't believe. But hear me this morning. If you're sitting here, if you don't have a first chair experience in your walk with the Lord, if you don't make that commitment at the core of your being, if you don't say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There will be a compromise because you cannot live off the experiences of your parents. You see, what happened with me is I was living on my mom and daddy's faith, my dad in particular. And when I became a teenager and got caught up in other stuff, my faith wasn't deep. My faith was their faith. And that's where you heard me say in San Antonio, Texas, in a barracks at Lackland Air Force Base, 1985, that's when that became my faith. When I knelt beside that bunk and I said, God, here I am. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of denying who you are and who you called me to be. And my prayer was, if you still want me, that's my prayer. If you still want me, here I am. And God reached down to this backslidden, called to preach young man. He said, come on, son. And that began a journey. And since 1985, I've never questioned it. I've never lost faith. I've never doubted it. I've never lost passion. It became my faith. See, when you have a first chair experience with God, you know, it, it, I mean, it did just something about it. It just, you don't care what the naysayers say. You know, somebody gets up and says, hey, I think we ought to, we ought to go out and canvas our community. Yeah. Instead of, well, you know, people have tried that, and it just don't work today. Always trying to find an excuse. Listen, when you haven't had, when you have not had that first-year experience, 
It's kind of easy to look at mom and dad and think, man, they're nuts. <laughs> anybody, know, anybody know what I'm talking about? It's easy to look at mom and dad. If you haven't had a first chair experience, it's easy to look at mom and dad and think, oh, I don't want to be like them. They're just kind of crazy. They got enough faith for everybody. I, I, don't, I don't need that kind of faith. You know, I don't want to be as radical as they are. We're smarter today, more advanced than they are. Let me share you a story. Two people meet, okay? Two people meet, they get radically saved, they fall in love. They get married, and they have children. And they raise their children in a Christian home and constantly talk about Jesus. Now, these children move off, and they get married, and they compromise their faith by marrying unbelievers. Now, that's a whole different sermon, but listen to me. It is important that we help steer our children. I'm not saying we pick their mates, but I'm saying... It's very important because so many people today are sitting broken in churches because they violated the command to not be unequally yoked. I'm not going to meddle, but I'm just saying we have a lot of people that are broken because they violated that. So they marry unbelievers. They compromise their faith. Now, these are good moral men, okay? There's nothing wrong with them. They don't beat or cheat or anything like lie. They don't do any of that stuff, but they're unbelievers. And they have children. Now, let me ask you, given the natural tendency of faith, do you think those children are going to end up serving the Lord? And the answer is probably not, unless there's something that happens as a divine intervention or something that stirs them from this to here. That's where we are. So many churches today are full of people who sit in second chair, some even in the third chair. Oh, they know what they ought to be. They know what they should be. They're, they're, they're believers. They're not, they don't disbelieve. They're not unbelievers. They just, they're just not sold out. Just not sold out. Oh, mom and dad had enough of that for everybody. They're just not sold out to God. Consequently, they, set, they, they compromise their faith. Listen, the second chair is a place where we talk about God. We have a knowledge of who he is, but we, the truth be known, we don't know him. He's not the priority of our life. He's not the first thing we think about. He doesn't occupy the center hub of who we are. He's just an addition that we've added. Listen, when a child grows up in a home of a second chair believer, which is uncommitted, they'll begin to see the flaws and the inconsistencies, and they will rebel against God. They will rebel. The tragedy, again, is like the grandchildren of Joshua. I mean, can you imagine? Joshua, this this stout General of the faith says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And his grandchildren did not know God nor anything that he had done. It's astounding to me. That's the tragedy. The Bible says that they did not know the Lord nor his mighty deeds. Why? Because if mom and dad were sitting in second chair, they did not experience the mighty works of God and their generation quit talking about it. I always said, if we have old stories, we need to pray for new stories. If all I'm talking about is what God used to do and I'm not talking about what God is doing, then I need to get in my secret prayer closet. I need to go, what was that movie, War Room? I need to go to my war room and I need to pray for God, the activity of the Holy Spirit. Listen, he's still alive and well. The pandemic didn't do anything to the activity of the Holy Spirit in this world. And I'm telling you, if we're not experiencing it today in our lives, go in that war room and pray and ask God to get involved and active in your life. Let your children see that. It's not don't blame these third generation kids. They hear grandma and grandpa talk about what God did, but mom and dad aren't sitting in chair number one, and so they're not seeing the mighty works of God, and so they're not talking about it. We go from committed to compromise to calloused. If we're here this, listen, if you're here this morning and Holy Spirit quickens you and says, you know what, you're sitting in that second chair Here's the thing, you always will be in conflict. I've never met someone sitting in the second chair who wasn't in conflict. Conflict is miserable. What what does that mean? It means trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I had a friend one time, had a call-in radio show, and I've shared this with you before, and he said, Mike, he said, you'd be surprised that over 90% of the people that call into this show always begin their question with the same thing. What is wrong with? What is wrong with? He said, the tendency is we want to see how close to the world we can get and still call ourselves a believer. See, that's the second chair. 
That's the second chair. That's the uncommitted. We're not sold out. We, we, have, we, have, we have just enough faith to be miserable. We're not, we're not happy in the world. We're not happy in the church. We're just kind of miserable. Second chair is the chair of lukewarmness, of revelation. He said, because you're neither hot nor cold, he said, I will spew you out of my mouth. First chair is hot. They're on fire for God. Passion, serving God. Third chair, totally indifferent to God. Second chair is lukewarm. They're complacent. They're not really committed. They're not concerned. First generation, they're dead to self. Their, their scripture is Galatians 2 and 20. says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. In the life that I live, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's their motto. That's their scripture. I'm crucified with Christ. First generation, second generation, they're concerned with self. And the third generation, they are totally absorbed with self. That's why you see the me movement. That's what's behind the transgender movement of our day. Totally absorbed with self. Totally absorbed. And left to their own devices, third generation will sit in pews, if at all. And they'll never hear an altar call. They'll never hear a call to repentance. They'll never realize the importance of Jesus being Lord. See, first chair has a strong prayer life, believes in the power of prayer. Second prayer has little prayer life. They pray over their meal. That's about the extent of it. Third generation, they have no prayer life whatsoever. First generation, they're rich in the Word. They love the Word of God. They believe the book is God's divine revelation to man, and they cling to it. The second generation, they have very little use for the Word. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a centerpiece on a coffee table or takes up space on the nightstand. That's about as far as it goes. The third generation comes along and there is no word. First generation emphasizes a personal relationship with God. People's emotions are touched in the presence of God. Listen, I still believe in that. I still believe the tangible presence of God. The Bible says when John turned to see who it was in Revelation 1 that was speaking to him, the Bible says when he saw him, he fell at his feet as a dead man, overwhelmed with the glory of God, the kabod. That's first generation. People are not ashamed to shout amen when the preacher's preaching because their faith is real. It touches their heart and the word, when the word is preached. The second generation comes along and they're more concerned about the programs. Isn't that true? People today want to seek the church that fits their profile of, their, of the programs, the most programs that meet their needs. What happened to the day when we prayed for God to lead us to where he wanted us to be? See, second generation, they're, they're more concerned about the programs of the church. The third generation comes along, and they're in total apathy. They're more concerned about the blue whales and hugged trees than they are lost souls. Look at David. David, King David was known after the, ma the, the man after God's own heart. Passionate. But he had a son by the name of Rehoboam, who was the most ungodly pagans around that caused the nation to split. So let me ask you guys, come on back as I wrap this up. What chair do you sit in this morning? What chair do you sit in this morning? Are you a first chair believer? Are you, as a, are, are you here to say, you know what, pastor, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Or do you find yourself right here saying, you know what? My mom and dad, they had enough faith for everybody. I, I, I'm pretty good where I am. Or maybe even worse, you're in the third chair. See, God has a plan. This is family. You say, what does this have to do with family values? Well, here's what it has to do with it. God has a plan for passing on faith from one generation to the next. My job as a parent, again, you, you heard me say it, I I recognize early on that I have one shot with my daughter sitting over here and my son in the back. I had one shot for them to fall in love with Jesus. That became the focal point of my parenthood. Oh, I, I was interested in who, who they dated and who they married. In fact, the, the, some of you have been here a long time. You know, I used to tell my daughter she wasn't getting married until she was 30. That didn't work, by the way. But then I always had this saying, I would always say, sweetheart, I'm not going to tell you who, you who you can date, but I will tell you who you cannot date. Because <laughs> I'm interested in her soul. 
I didn't want to leave it to chance. And I know that we live in a culture today that wants to teach parents the hands-off approach. Let your children experience life. Let them learn lessons. My kids were not smart enough to make those types of decisions. I'm not impugning their, their intelligence. Very intelligent kids. Well, adults now. I'm not, I'm not at all. I'm just simply saying there are things that our kids cannot decide, and we should not leave it to chance. God has a plan for passing on faith to that next generation. In fact, we find it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul, speaking to Timothy, he says, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And then notice what he does. Which was first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. Did you see that? The methodology of God is for one generation to speak the goodness of God to the next generation, to model for them and to show them that God can be trusted and that you can build your life upon the principles and teachings of God. He said, Timothy, the faith was in your grandmother, and then it was in your mother, and I know it's in you also. Now stir that thing up. Listen, there is a faith, my friend, that can be handed down from one generation to the next, and the Bible says we're to stir it up. That doesn't mean I sit there, cross my legs, get in a chanting mode, go, hmm, waiting for God. No, that's, I take initiative. I discipline myself. Paul said, if you're going to run, you've got to practice those disciplines. You've got to beat your body in submission. If you're going to see your children saved, that means you're going to have to step in and you're going to have to lead them in prayer. And you may have to drag them to church and you may have, you may have to take charge. God forbid parents would take charge these days. You might just have to do something. You might have to get involved. You might have to turn off TikTok and watch your kids. You might have to turn off your devices and say, come on, kids, let's go. We're going to church. Oh, I'm telling you, they're going to bellyache. They're going to moan and they're going to groan. But it's worth every bit to know that in the end, listen, it's not about passing on an inheritance. You can give them every, every you can give them millions and billions of dollars. <laughs> but if you don't give them Jesus, you've not given them anything. There's a faith that can be passed on. The Bible says stir it up. If you're here this morning, maybe you're online this morning and, and you're not in that first chair You're not sitting here saying, you know what, I'm passionate, I want more of God. If you're not sitting there, maybe you're sitting in the chair of compromise. Maybe there's been compromise and conflict. Listen, your children will see that. If they hear you say, don't you dare say that word, and then you say it, that's a chair of conflict. I'm not meddling, I'm not going to meddle. You don't understand what I'm talking about. They will spot hypocrisy. Oh, and by the way, we're a church that loves hypocrites. So some of you aren't too convinced by that. We love hypocrites. What better place for them to be in the house of the Lord where the power of God can transform their lives? Anyway, I'm meddling there. Listen, if you're not in that first chair, ask God to stir up something inside of you. It's time, church, we take back our families. The devil is trying to redefine the family, trying to tell moms and dads that they're not important that the the government is going to raise our kids and they're listen get involved be a nosy mom be a nosy dad don't listen i'm going to say this and i'm going to close i promise don't believe a word your kids say they will lie to you and smile all the way because the bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked be active Check their phone. Check their account. Listen, some of these kids are like, shut up, Pastor. Quit, quit. (laughs) I'm just saying, don't leave it to chance. Don't leave it to chance. You have one shot. Get your kids in this first chair. Let God, let your children see you with tears streaming down your face as you weep for lost people. 
Let them see you give up, sacrifice something so that you can go out and serve somebody. Let them, let them experience that with you. Better yet, don't just talk about, take them with you. I know my kids were, were PKs, but they grew up in ministry. They grew up going out, doing block parties and outreaches and things of that nature. And, and that was just part of it. I mean, that's just part of who we are. That's what we do. Don't always look for somebody to watch your kids. Get them involved in ministry. Let them see you working for somebody else without any strings attached. Let them experience it. Let them see you with your hands raised, praising God, worshiping God. Let them see you in the household with worship music on, with tears streaming. Let them see that. Let them know that God is real and that if he's real, he's not just stories of what grandma and grandpa talked about, that he's real and he's active and he's moving in our lives today. I would to God that revival hit our children and our students and that they come out speaking in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them others because the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them. Let God do something in this generation. We've got to have it, church. I want you to stand with me. My prayer is God do it in this generation. I've heard the stories I grew up in a time, thank God, I grew up in a time in the 70s. Church was church. We got so sophisticated now. I just like, God, do it again. What happened to the people that used to run down the aisle and said, I, what must I do to be saved? Listen, I can remember a time even here back in the late 90s. There's been a couple of times in our history here, I've, probably mid mid to late 90s I can remember two times in particular somebody driving by the building inexplicably drove into the parking lot came running into the building and said I was driving and I just felt such a need to come into this place where's that at where's that at why don't we see that again so I, I don't want to be a church that sits in a second chair and we talk about the stories of what God has done Furthermore, I don't want to be in the third chair that, that just we're busy with programs. We don't care anything about God. As long as we have programs and we can build a crowd, who cares? No, I don't want to be like that. I want to be in the first chair where it says, you know what? We're going to serve the Lord. It may not be popular. It may not get us elected to anything, but we will serve the Lord. And when we stand before him, we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be that place. What chair are you in this morning? I'm just going to close like this. If you're here today and say, you know what, Pastor, I need revival in my family. Whatever that means, whatever that means, if you're here today and say, you know what, Pastor, I need revival in my family. I want God to move in my family. Then as they sing, I want you to come and just meet me right down front here. I want you to come meet me here. This is the time we say, God, do it again. He's faithful. He's faithful. And he'll do it again. Go ahead. Come on, just call out to him. Just come down and call out to him. God, do it. Do it again. Do it in my family. Do it in my family. Do those miracles in my family. We can melt the hardest heart. Speak life into my soul. Who can spin the world around and hold me ever close? Who can search the depths of me and love me to the core? Who controls the world I see and walks me through it all? Sing of your 
but you, Lord. I would say to you this morning, your situation is not hopeless. You are not at the end. What appears to be dead, what appears to be over, is just three days away. For three days, he lay in a tomb, and others said he was dead. But on the third day, he arose triumphant. So I tell you this morning, do not see with your natural sight what looks to be dead, but see with eyes of faith to believe that I'm working on your behalf. And when you go through these deep, dark valleys, I've not abandoned you. I'm with you every step of the way. And I will bring you through it. And I will establish you and set up a table even in the presence of your enemies. For I am with you, and I will accomplish my purpose, saith the Lord. Hallelujah. If you're here this morning, you just heard a message of tongues and interpretation as Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. There are ministry gifts that are given to the body to edify, to build, to strengthen, to correct. Church, listen. God is for you as a family. Whatever those dynamics are, God is for you. And before we dismiss, I want to say this. If you're a parent here this morning and you're having difficulty with your children, my suggestion to you would be this. Ask God to show you if you have, you know, the Bible says that the instruction of the parent to the child is that fathers are not to exacerbate their children. What that means is that we are not to relentlessly beat on them. Not physically, but we shouldn't be just yakking at them all the time with our mouth, putting them down. What, I, what I'm saying is if, if you have some issues with your children, maybe it would be a wonderful thing to sit down and maybe have a come to Jesus meeting and sit down with them and say, you know what? Mom, dad, whoever it is, we want to do different. You know, before all this, we, we've tried to be a good Christian home, but we've kind of been misguided a little bit on some things. And I'm sorry. By the way, parents, you do know you can tell your children you're sorry. You can say, I'm sorry that maybe I yelled when I shouldn't have yelled. Maybe I didn't believe you. Whatever it is, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, say, I'm sorry. And you know what? Moving forward, 
I want us to be a Christian home. I want it to be a place where there's harmony and there's peace, where we as a family can gather, respect each other, and serve the Lord. You start there. That is a foundational principle there. You start there, and I promise you God will begin to do do wonderful things in your family. I would say as a husband and a wife, maybe you need to have that same conversation with your husband and your wife. Maybe you as a husband need to sit down with your wife and say, sweetheart, I'm sorry for being a jerk. Quite frankly, men, we can be. Maybe you need to sit down with her and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I've I've abdicated my role as a priest of the home. I've not led the way I should, and I'm sorry. And with God's help moving forward, we're going to be a godly home, and I'm going to make sure of it. Maybe you as a wife need to say, you know what? I'm sorry for being a nag. And I'm sorry I've tried to take away your God-given role and responsibility in the household. And I've tried to take on a position that God never intended for me. And for moving forward, I want to be the best wife as unto the Lord that I can possibly be. Listen, why do we get embarrassed with those family dynamics and feel like we can't sit down and be honest with each other? Sometimes it's the best thing that we need to do is sit down and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I blew it. But if we're moving forward, we're going to be better. It's time we heal the family. It's time we see revival in our family, our marriages, our homes. And when you start changing that, watch the world change. You see, when you build a family like that, it doesn't matter what the school board does. It doesn't matter what the legislature does. When you build your home on the solid foundation of God's word, The world can huff and puff, but they can't blow your house down because it's established on a rock. I love you with all my heart. Father, today, let this be a turning point. There there are families here today that are hurting. Let today be the bedrock upon which we begin to build something great. Lord, I pray that today we make that volitional commitment of our will that says I'll not occupy second chair or third. But as for me and my house, we choose you, Jesus. I pray for that relationship, that husband and wife relationship. Give them the ability to sit and talk in honesty with each other. To repent for the wrongs that have been done that have created a wall a chasm between the two and heal that breach and bring them together. You said what you put together, let no man put asunder. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen that bond and then to our parents to be able to be honest with their children and sit down and say, you know, we don't have all the answers and sometimes we blow it. But moving forward, we will build on the teachings of Christ. Father, let revival start in our families. I pray for those online today do something supernatural in them. Father, let something begin here. Pour out your spirit in abundance. Lord, let us experience the supernatural presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, not so that you get all the glory and all that is accomplished. Go with us today. May we walk out determined to be different than when we walked in. I love and bless each one now in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Thanks for being with us online. I'll see you next time. God bless you and I love you. Bless you guys. Love you very much. Hear the ocean
Remember 